What's going on? Welcome back to the Jordan Syatt Mini Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I have a great episode for you today with Alex Viata, the owner of Complete Human Performance and just a straight up genius. I've done two episodes with Alex Pryor all about Zone 2 cardio, which I will put in the show notes if you have not listened to them already. You should probably listen to those first. But in this episode, we talk all about high-intensity interval training. Zone 2 is obviously the lower-intensity work that has massive benefits on your health and performance. Higher-intensity interval training is still important, even though you shouldn't do nearly as much, which will go into the ratios with which you should do low-intensity versus high-intensity training. But in this episode, Alex really dives into the who, what, where, why, when, and how of high-intensity interval training. So I think you're going to like it a lot. Fair warning, the audio is a little bit iffy. Alex didn't have the best service with where he was, so sometimes he cuts in and out. It's still, you can still hear it and you can still make make out what he's saying, but occasionally it'll be a little bit annoying, so I apologize for that ahead of time. But with that being said, I hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, please leave a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify, and uh, let's get into it. Alex Viata, we're live, brother. Jordan. (laughs) All right, glad to be doing this again. For, so before we dive in, uh, Alex and I have done two podcasts already on Zone 2, which were two of the, the most downloaded podcasts I've ever done. People have really, really, really enjoyed them, so I'm excited to bring you back on. Um, before we dive in, could you just tell people where they can follow you if they don't already? Uh, best places on our Instagram. Uh, my personal Instagram, alex.viata and at completehumanperformance. One word. That's my company. Awesome. All right. So uh, you are having a cigar right now and a beer. Is that what it looks like? Yeah. Oh, but you have to call me out on the beer too. I'm definitely having a cigar. <laughs> so, so I wasn't planning on talking about it, but so talk to me about it. Like cigars, like in terms of uh, like your enjoyment for them in terms of like health. Like I want to talk about it. I want to hear like your thoughts on it. Cause I feel like a lot of people might see, Oh, that's weird. Like Alex is super healthy, but he's smoking a cigar and having beer. Like talk to me about that. Yeah, actually that's, that's a, that's a good, really good thing to talk about. Um, is the perfect is the enemy of good. And I think we know that, mm-hmm. um, you know, my, when I first got in, when I first got into fitness, uh, I come from a family history. My, my dad's side of my family, they're, they're Afro-Cuban. That's where the cigar connection comes in. It was always kind of a tradition. Um, but you know, for me, my, my whole thing, I've gone through various periods in life and definitely in fitness where I have been extremely, extremely dedicated, extremely. So never missing a step, never missing a workout, everything on the nutrition side dialed in and all that. A lot of that stuff is great. It's, it's great if you can do it, but I think with that comes certain compromises. And I think it's really, really important for people to know that the objective for most of us with fitness, even for those of us who like to compete, you know, who like to who like to actually compete at a fairly high level in a lot of our sports, um, it's it has to it has to in fact be a lifestyle, and it involves what I say is more healthy behaviors leading to health, not not health for its own sake, not not just avoiding everything that you possibly could see as a vice or avoiding every misstep or or avoiding every negative and trying to be perfect. It's saying every day, you know, every day when you sit down, you start your day, you are constantly making choices that either further your health or hinder it or have no impact Mm -hmm. whatsoever. But every minute of every day, you, you can make a choice. You can make a choice to stand up and go walk around the office. You can make a choice to, to, 
get yourself another glass of water, or you can make a choice to go have more coffee. You know, it's as the day goes on, you make choices constantly one way or the other, and you don't have to be perfect all the time. And if you have hobbies, if you have, you know, little evening rituals or something like that, that's not perfect. You can still pursue health-seeking behaviors 95% of the time, 90% of the time, 85% of the time, and come out ahead. You just have to be, of course, very realistic in which behaviors you're choosing to follow and, you know, where where you might be <laughs> veering a little too far off track. But, Got it. you know, it's... You know, I think for me, I, I take care of my health. I monitor my blood pressure. I monitor my blood work. I obviously do my cardio and everything else. And so for me, a cigar isn't necessarily a health-seeking behavior. But from somebody who, like me, was a pack-and-a-half-a-day smoker back in college days for a mm. long time, something like this is, you know, an infinite improvement. It's not perfect. My diet isn't perfect. My training isn't perfect. But for the most part, I continue to pursue health-seeking behaviors. Got it. That makes sense. I love that. And it's, you know, it's the moderation, even, even with moderation. No, and this is, has literally nothing to do with what uh, we're going to talk about later and what we're planning to talk about. But um, is there anything about smoke? Like, do you view smoking as like, it's a hundred percent bad? Like, are there any myths associated with smoking? Like, like I, I, I've never dove into the research, right? Like I, everything I've learned about smoking has essentially been like, I've just learned from, from outside sources. I've never looked at a PubMed article on the effect of smoking. Like I've, I've just taken everything I've been told at face value. Like, have you looked into that at all? Yeah. And there's no question smoking isn't good for you. Now, obviously <laughs> You know, people say, well, what if I, you know, nicotine itself, first of all, is a drug. It has some ergogenic effect. It has some beneficial effect. It has some negative effect. You know, a lot of people have actually asked me about nicotine for performance enhancement and anything from vaping to nicotine gum, use for athletics and all that. For the most part, I generally say to avoid it. Um, as far as cigars, cigarettes, vaping, everything else goes, they all have their trade-offs. Cigars don't actually go into the lungs. You don't get a lot of the deleterious effects on, you know, cardiovascular capacity, et cetera, but it can still cause various oral cancers, it can still cause tooth decay, a whole bunch of other things. So it's not like, you know, going for one versus the other gives you a free pass to do whatever you want. I mean, it's it's pretty universal that, you know, it's it's generally not a healthy behavior. But, you know, for me, it's well-ventilated room. Do I take in a little bit of smoke? Probably. Is it the best <laughs> thing? Probably not. Is having a cigar or two a week going to kill me? You know what? It, it lets me feel like... I can maintain some level of a little bit of luxury, a little bit of routine, something that's not at all health related. And it's, you know, for me, it's always a family tradition, uh, you know, holidays and evenings, things like that. So it's, that's, that's really what it is. Wait. And so, and pardon my ignorance, like I don't, I don't smoke at all, but so do the, you, you don't actually breathe in with a, like you don't, it doesn't go into your lungs with a cigar. Nope. Nope. So what do you, you do with act- it? Yeah, you literally just get the smoke into your into your mouth, gives you the flavor of it. You don't inhale, and you just let it out. Interesting. All right, well, if I was going to smoke, maybe that's why. Because I remember at my high school graduation, I was given a cigar, and I was not given that speech. <laughs> I was not. I, I was not given the tutorial on how to uh, smoke a cigar, so I just went like, "Oh, cool!" and I just sucked it in, and I I almost threw up. Like it was, and I was like, "I'm never doing this again." Like I was like, "Why would anybody ever do this?" Um, you know, 
you still do get a little bit of smoke in just from the wafting and everything else. But I think if I took a full inhale, I would probably be in a coughing pit for the next five oh, minutes. God, it, it reminded so, me because there were a couple times in high, like all the stupid stuff I did was mostly in high school. But I also, you know, and there are a lot of kids doing dip in high school where they would put like the, you know, the the tobacco, the chewing tobacco in between their their lip and their gum. And I tried that. And I threw up both times I did that. Like it, I, I'm very lucky because I have a very addictive personality in general. And I'm so lucky that my first experiences with smoking and with and with tobacco just almost ended like ended up in throwing up or almost throwing up because I immediately was like, nope, not for me. <laughs> not for you, <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because, uh, you know, I was just like I said, I was a smoker for a long time, quit completely. And I remember it was about six or seven months after I quit, I actually got, you know, just, you know, just a night. I was actually bouncing working security at the time. I decided to have one. It was really late at night. I thought, okay, maybe I'll have a cigarette to keep myself up. I felt so nauseated, so <laughs> shaky. I had to sit outside for about an hour trying to get over that nicotine buzz. So, really, you know, that, yeah. And that was, that was my moment where I said, okay, thank, you know, thank, thank God I'm done with this. I, yeah. I'm not going back yeah, to yeah. this. Um, and, so, and do you yeah. do you notice any negative effect on like your cardio on your cardiovascular performance or on anything as a result or like because you you smoke so infrequently now you don't really and it, it doesn't vast majority doesn't go in your lungs you don't really notice a difference i don't really notice a difference no uh if i have one too late at night i might notice a little bit of restlessness and, and things like that but uh you know usually it'll be like you know like for example right now having a conversation you know i'm gonna go cook dinner we might have some friends over later you know it's gonna be that kind of thing where the 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 energy levels i usually say look try to stay away from stimulants in the afternoon you know sleep architecture issues and all that it's still early enough i won't have that issue and as far as cardiovascular capacity goes obviously n of one i'm not exactly doing double blind studies here but i i haven't noticed any significant difference in periods when you know i've had one or two a week versus when i've gone two or three weeks without so got it and I, I, I think even just back to your original point, the, the message here is I think a lot of people also catastrophize their fitness. They mm. say, you know, I have one or two bad habits. Am I, am I not being healthy anymore? Or if I want to get healthy, do I have to give up everything? Do I have to avoid social situations? And it's always like you want to say, no, just just be smart about it. Be cool about it. If you if you take a step, it's not a, it's not like you fall off the wagon. I hate that term because you're still yeah. going in the same direction. It's there's no wagon. You are the wagon. It's yeah. if, if you have a few things that derail you slightly, think about all the other good choices you make throughout the day and focus on those. That's what keeps yeah. you. That's what keeps you moving. That's a good point. I like that. You, you, there's no wet. You didn't fall off like you are the wagon. Like just yeah. you, maybe you slow down a little bit, but like you didn't fall off. Just keep going. Exactly. And like I said, you make a million choices a day. Some are yeah. choices of action. Some are choices of inaction. If you make one or two bad choices a day, make one or two other good ones. Balance it out. And it's so interesting, like just from a psychology perspective, how it's so easy to hyper focus on the like, potentially bad choices and and almost forget all of the great choices you made. Right? It's so easy to just be so hard on yourself and just only think about like, oh, I made this one choice, or God forbid, I had this food, or I made I did this, or whatever it is. But you forget all of the other great decisions you made. Oh, man. And I'm sure you see this all the time. The number of people who are worried about going back to the person they were, you know, I don't want to yeah. slip back into old habits and all that. And and part of you says you, you're not going to. You have so much more information now and, you know, one or two steps back in that direction. But the other thing I also tell people is, you know, when they're worried about becoming the person they were before who had bad habits, you want to say, hey, 
that person with the bad habits is still the one that made the decision to to get you where you are now. Yeah, that's a great point. Respect that person's judgment. Respect your own judgment. Like you made the hardest decision and the hardest choices, you're still good. I love that. That that's a really really good way to look at it. Like that person made the decision to become who you are today. So respect yeah. that person. Yeah, I love that. That's that's a really good way to look at it. Yeah. So that's that's my whole thing on having an occasional cigar and beer and uh, doing all that, especially after a really long day. Of yeah. Moving yeah. around like crazy. What What did you do today? So I also volunteer up at the uh, the Wolf Center. It's a Wolf Sanctuary. Uh, just up in Julian, about 30 minutes up the road. Okay. So spent the morning out there doing, you know, cleaning out the habitats and all of that and hauling around frozen foods back and forth and all of that kind of stuff. So that was my, uh, that was my morning. Man, is, you're one of the most interesting people I've ever gotten the chance to. And I don't, I don't know you that well yet. We've spoken a fair amount, but like, I, st- I don't consider myself knowing you very well. Um, but you, you, you know, you run a very successful business but you also, you know, you also train like an elite athlete in many, in many ways. Like you're, you are super high performing in that sense. You also t- find time to volunteer. You're out in the wild. Like you, it's really amazing. Like how you, how you have the, you, I don't even know how to phrase it. I was going to say you have the ability to, or you prioritize all this stuff, but it's amazing all the stuff that you do and how many hands you have in different things. And it seems like you have so many different hobbies and you're able to allocate time to so many of them. But, uh, you know, and I, I'm sure you know, and I appreciate that, but I'm sure you know, it's like the more the more different hobbies you have, you, you start to find some, in some cases, as your schedule gets busier, but you're doing multiple things you're passionate about, it actually gives you energy. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you think, oh, well, this is going to drain me. But like going up to the sanctuary, it's hard work, but it's it's so rewarding. Yeah. And people there are so passionate and you're working with really, really cool animals. And you're doing, and you you come back and you're tired, but you're revitalized in a lot of other ways. And I think, you know, it's it it is tempting, and I'm sure you know this. Like as you as you narrow your focus sometimes and and hyper focus on one thing or you know two things or anything else, you you start to think, okay, I have no excess energy at the end of the day. Mm. But sometimes going out and spending energy on something that actually revitalizes you. You may still be tired, but mentally you get excited and emotionally you get excited and you do all these things that are bringing energy back to you. So it's like you can actually start doing more. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, especially because if you do, if you only focus on one thing or two things, sometimes you just burn out. You just burn out with it. And oftentimes, like, you'll think you're working on it, but you're actually procrastinating and you're, you're wasting your time. You're not really putting in energy towards working on it so that's sometimes why getting away focusing on something you enjoy by the time you come back then you can actually get to work on that thing and actually be productive rather than sort of like haphazardly just focusing on it and procrastinating while you're while you're aware of it not even really working on it well you know it's it's actually interesting because not even trying to tie this perfectly back into a training discussion but you know when you when you just do one thing and you think you can't do anything else and you know, sometimes you'll add something else on, you'll add on, you know, you'll add on fighting, you'll add on running, you'll add on something else. It, it gives you this sense of, okay, I can, I can do multiple things. I can progress in multiple things. If one thing is burning me out, I've got something else giving me energy yeah. back in. And it's like, it's everything you do becomes more than the sum of its parts. Yeah. That's, that's a good way to look at it. It's also, I've noticed the same thing with my training where, 
you know, it's it's sort of like this this hard thing to balance or is even a hard thing to describe because I think on one hand you need to have a, a focus with your training in order to to make pro- like you have to have something to focus on there has to be like a, a like a primary goal if you will but I also think that if it's all you ever focus on it's so easy to burn out and and you also neglect other important qualities as well so it's been really fun for me to have like jujitsu, but then also have strength and then also have have dedicated cardio as well, because the more different things I have, the more like I get more variety and it's more fun. And I can also see how improving in one of those things will impact something else entirely that almost seems unrelated. And right. then it's fun to bring them all together. Yeah, and then you get the reward and you get that extra charge. Like, I mean, just after your intervals this weekend, like hitting new power targets and everything else, you get that revitalization. You go, I, you know, I, hey, I, I crushed something today. It, it's so nice getting that positive feedback, even if it's not something that even two months ago you would have thought was even a priority. You yeah. still get charge from it. And it, it re-engages you in other aspects of your training in a lot of ways. Dude, it's so crazy. And I want to talk to you about, you know, the the power intervals I was doing. And I t- want to talk to you about high intensity training, all that. I just have yeah. to say, man, so today I went to jujitsu and, and I do it almost every day, like five, six times a week, at least usually. And today my professor and I rolled for uh, about 40 minutes straight nonstop. We had took one water break and yeah. I, I felt so good. Like I felt I wasn't tired at all. Like yeah. it was I just, I feel so good. My cardio is literally the best it's ever been better than when I was a high school wrestler. And I like my, my cardio is the best it's ever been. And it's so cool now because I'm seeing the benefits of the high intensity intervals that we, we do very sparingly. We don't do that many, just like once or twice a week at most, but I'm seeing the benefit with those in terms of my recovery time after a really high intensity bout with it while doing jujitsu, right? Where uh, it seems as though that aerobic base that zone two has given me has, has helped in many ways that we can talk about, but being able to recover very quickly from a really high intensity bout of, of jujitsu, I would imagine a lot of that recovery ability has come from the high intensity work you've been having me do. Yep. But it, it has to come on that base. And I think that's the really mm. there. And that's why this is all kind of come in this fashion. And I think one of the reasons why you've been able to progress so quickly in the high intensity work and in almost a linear fashion has be, been because of that aerobic base that you've built. I mean, that's, you know, the, the oldest school endurance periodization is, you know, you have your off season build phase and, you know, and all of that kind of your base phase and then your build phase. And that's a lot of it. You have this foundation now and everything you've built up, the, the, the cardiovascular capacity and, you know, the peripheral capillarization and the mitochondrial density and all those fat burning enzymes and everything else in your cells that are helping you replenish, they're actually mm. facilitating all of those higher intensity energy systems and giving them the foundation to build from. So I, I want to talk to you about, um, I want to talk to you about a couple of things and I'm, I wasn't really sure where to start, but I actually saw a post from the Complete Human Performance account the other day. Uh, that That's your your business account, right? Complete Human Performance. It was uh, it was actually about cardio and about the the splits that you have in terms of how, what percentage of your training should be the low intensity zone two type work and what what percentage should be the higher intensity work. And if I remember correctly, it was about 85% of your cardio training should be zone two and about 15% should be higher intensity. Is that accurate? Am I rem- remembering correctly? That's pretty much right. 
Yep. So can you explain that? Can you explain like why so much more lower intensity, uh, why you don't need as much higher intensity, and then maybe a little bit about um, what the programming would look like a little bit more practically? Sure. Yeah. So one of the reasons that, and when we look back at the history of what we call this polarized training, in some cases it's 80-20, you know, they, they say 80% low intensity, 20% high intensity. Looking at more elite athletes, it's 85 to 15. In some cases, it's 88 to 12%. A lot of that was arrived at by actually looking at a lot of top tier marathon runners. Mm-hmm. Out of this observation made where they looked at different training programs and looked at success rates, looked at incidents of burnout and overtraining, and then looked at progression year over year after year, and determined that it was this split, this split, this polarized split that resulted in the best possible outcomes. They started looking back fundamentally at what the training looked like and what the science was, the underpinnings, the energy systems, and they realized that you needed this tremendous volume or you needed this large volume of zone two work to really leverage that high intensity work. Mm. Understanding that the high intensity work, I don't want to really say it this way, but you almost earn the high intensity work by building the base for it. Okay. Otherwise, you're, you're trying to, if you think about higher intensity work as potentiating the base that you've built up, if you do nothing but high intensity work, like let's say you just start out, you go into training, you start just doing high intensity work, you're going to see great progress for six to eight weeks, okay. but be limited by the base that you built up prior to that, which may be next to nothing. Yep. So you can do a long base phase and then potentiate it with high intensity work and go from one to the other. But once you start doing that high intensity work, you're going to be limited by whatever base you built when you started. Got it. The other thing is there is a certain ratio. Every time you train, you're fatiguing different energy systems. You go out for a run, you're fatiguing your muscles, you're fatiguing your joints, you're fatiguing your, you know, all your connective tissue ligaments, you're causing cardiovascular, you know, cardiac fatigue, you're causing hormonal, you know, hormonal cascade fatigue, you're causing neural fatigue and all of that. Every type of training you do has one bottleneck or another. The high intensity work, the bottleneck may very well be muscular. It may be uh, uh, maybe neurological. You may be talking about that central fatigue and everything else that sets in. What can happen if you do nothing but high intensity work is certain systems like your like your muscles, like your nervous system, et cetera, that whole central governor idea, may be limiting the amount of work and may be limiting the stress you're putting on your cardiovascular system. Mm. So what's gonna if you do a lot of high intensity work, your cardiovascular, a lot of that base work isn't getting adequately stimulated because other systems are failing first. So what this ratio really allows you to do is it allows you to continue developing these cardiovascular systems, these low intensity adaptations, these fat burning enzymes, nutrient partitioning, capillary density, mitochondrial profiles, all those things. It allows those to continue developing and that particular training adequately stimulates those. While the higher intensity work, you're getting a lot of those glycolytic enzymes proliferating. You're getting a lot of that, uh, you know, lactate clearance and a lot of the local adaptations responsible for allowing for higher intensity work. You're getting that neuromuscular training and all of that. So what this ratio is really doing is spreading out the fatigue. So every system involved in performance is getting adequately stimulated without any one serving as the major limiting factor. That is very interesting. I've never heard it explained like that. And it makes a lot of sense, especially from the perspective of your muscular system, for example, might be fatiguing out before your cardiovascular system is fatiguing so that because you're doing so much high intensity work, 
your your muscles are giving out before you've given your heart enough time to or your heart or your lungs or whatever given it enough time to actually achieve the stimulus that it was supposed to get and so that's so so that's one of the major reasons why having this base of lower intensity zone two work that you can do much more of it's not as stressful you can actually really get the stimulus on your heart and your lungs your cardiovascular system because your muscles shouldn't be fatiguing at zone two like it shouldn't be that stressful you can actually fully target your cardiovascular system obviously you're still stressing your tissues but not enough to where they're fatiguing out and that they preventing you from reaching that point whereas depending on the modality you're using for the high intensity work like it, you could be fatiguing elsewhere whether it's central fatigue muscular fatigue whatever it is before you're actually getting the heart and getting the heart enough of a stimulus exactly and i always liken it you know people come from a lifting background i just tell them well if you want to get strong what would happen if you go in and you max out every single day hmm. probably going to get strong in the short term and then you're going to get burnt out. You're not going to be building any muscle. You're going to start to expose imbalances. A good program has some heavy work. It has some heavy singles. You can go through phases of doing heavy work, but you also have hypertrophy work. You have skill development work. You have dynamic effort or rate of force development work. You have all these components that go together to ensure that all the systems involved in maximum strength are still getting adequately developed and getting adequately developed throughout the training cycle. If you max out all the time, it feels great. You know, you're like, yeah, I'm getting strong. You know, I'm squatting every day. I'm deadlifting every day. And it feels really good until suddenly it doesn't. Yeah. That's exactly it. It's like, hey, you're eventually going to tap out. So once you do, you're going to have to go back and you're going to have to start doing your base work. You're going to have to do your hypertrophy work again. You're going to have to start addressing whatever imbalances you came up with. All of that. It's the same basic concept. It's diversification of rep ranges and loads and everything else just in endurance training. And when we talk about the other important thing to remember is when we talk about 85 to 15%, we're not talking about like number of workouts. Like, for example, let's say I do an interval workout that's got a 15 minute warm up and it's got 20 minutes of one minute on, one minute off, which sounds horrible. Yeah, it sounds and, terrible. <laughs> and then we've got a 20 minute cool down. So, like, let's say 20 minute warm up, 20 minutes of intervals, 20 minute cool down. The warm-up and cool-down is all low-intensity. The high-intensity work is only 50% high-intensity. So in that whole workout, I've only done actually 10 minutes of high-intensity work. Mm. Hour-long workout. So generally, you may not even count the warm-up and cool-down if they're at extremely low intensity. You may say, okay, this workout, the actual workout portion was 20 minutes, 10 minutes high-intensity, 10 minutes low-intensity. It's really important to remember that if someone is doing four or five hours of cardio a week, even, which could be very average for, you know, even a, a half marathon runner, 15% of that being high intensity, you're still talking about 45 plus minutes on the clock at high intensity, which Jeez. is, it's a lot of work. And I think a lot of people underestimate that. They say, that doesn't sound like enough. Say, look, if you want to do 200 minutes of cardio a week, and I'm going to tell you 30 minutes of that needs to be zone four or higher. Oh, a lot of work. That's yeah. That's nauseating thinking about it. Yeah. Cause even, even like just the sprints that you have, you're having me do right now where I have like the 15 second power <laughs> intervals where I go 15 seconds on and then 145 off like seven, eight rounds of that. Like that's awful. Like yeah. that, that, and that's just how we start the sprints. And then from there, then we go to like slightly more like 20 second sprint with like about a minute rest, a uh, minute, 10 rest as it was yesterday, but like 20, and then I do six rounds of that. So it's a total of about like 
12-ish rounds yeah. of, of sprints for, a, I don't know how many total minutes, but I don't think it could be more than like seven to 10 minutes of actual sprinting. Exactly. And then you may throw some of that high intensity, like threshold work on there. I usually count that towards your high intensity work. Got but it. Overall, it still represents the minority. So you may find in your program that you're actually operating probably closer at 12% high intensity, which again is fine for performance purposes. That's, that's still more than adequate, but, and that's, that could be pretty brutal as it is. That's so interesting. That that's a good way to look at it. So it's like it's the actual time spent in that zone. It's not like if you're if you're doing uh, a twenty second sprint with a with a minute rest or whatever it is. That minute rest doesn't count as time spent there. That's the you're just the twenty seconds, and you exactly. add that up. Like wow, yeah, that's that's a really interesting way to look at it. Um, it adds up. So so could you talk so. I think at this point, if anyone doesn't know about Zone 2, go listen to the first two podcasts we did. I'll, I'll link them here. I do have a couple more questions about Zone 2, but sure. in terms, so we, we know the general benefits of having a great base of Zone 2 cardio. We know that's going to help, but can you explain why that helps? Like, what does having a great base, an aerobic, a great aerobic base, what does that do? And then more going now into the higher intensity work, what does that do? Like, what's the difference from having a great aerobic base and then going into the high intensity work? What does that do for you? Sure. So if we want to think about it this way, and this is going to be an oversimplification, obviously, because the whole thing is a continuum, much like lifting. Do heavy singles build muscle? Sure. Is that their primary purpose? No. We're going to do the same thing with this. So if we want to think about it this way, think about the high intensity work as really Let's think about the muscles and muscle cells directly, really learning how to like, let's just say contract more efficiently and get, you know, and then a lot of the anaerobic systems, the ATP CP system, uh, anaerobic glycolysis, you know, lactic acid fermentation, all that. Think of that as the higher intensity work. What zone two work is doing, which your base work is doing is you're strengthening your heart quite a bit. Again, you're stre strengthening that, uh, you know, the, the elasticity, the preload, the Frank Starling mechanism, which is basically the harder the heart, or the more the heart expands, the harder it contracts. Mm. All of that comes with zone two. Zone two is also what you're going to be doing is you're going to be improving a lot of the fat burning enzymes. You're going to be upregulating the amount of fat burning enzymes. And every cell and every system is going to get better at mobilizing stored fat system and all of that. All of that, if you think about what it's doing is with your base work, you are improving your body's ability to deliver oxygen to cells and remove waste products from those cells. Obviously, there are some other local benefits to it and everything else, but think about zone two work as fueling oxygenation and also basically fueling your cells' ability to recover in between higher intensity bouts. Again, oversimplification, high intensity work does that too, but primarily think about this as providing the energy system and energy source for your cells to actually do the high intensity work okay every high interval you do anything that slowly starts to push your lactate threshold what you're going to be doing is you know when you when you hit that threshold when you really get into a lot of that anaerobic glycolysis yes there are enzymes responsible for that that help that happen faster the cells are still utilizing all these aerobic systems even in a sprint you're still burning fat just not very much of it what you're trying to do is you're still trying to make sure that those lower intensity systems, the fat burning, the oxygenation, all of that is providing as much energy as possible and is kicking in to help cells and help your muscle tissue recover 
in between sets and in between efforts as quickly as possible. Mm. So all this zone two work is doing, especially when it comes to high performance, is it's going to allow your high intensity intervals to go on a little bit longer. It's going to allow you to do more with less decrease in performance between them. It's going to allow you to improve or recover faster in between them. All of these things that may not necessarily improve your top end. And in fact, if you don't do any high intensity work, you may notice that your top end actually decreases, but your foundation is building up and up and up and up. And it's allowing you to put in more high quality, high intensity work and recover from it faster. Got it. So, so, so yeah. with, with the analogy of saying like doing zone two work, basically it, it allows you to create a more efficient engine. So like it, like using that car analogy, the engine analogy, like you could, you can go for longer and you might even be able, be able to actually go faster without, uh, you could go longer and faster for longer before like you need to refill your refill with gas. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily increase your top, top speed. Like it doesn't mean your car could be, would be the fastest in the world. If you're not going, like it doesn't make you the fastest car in the world, but it does make you a more efficient, longer lasting car. Uh, okay. So, so is that a good analogy for that? Yep. I would say so. Definitely. Which is why if you look at like a sprinter, they don't really care how long they take to recover in between sets, you know, they, but still a good aerobic base in sprinters is going to allow them to do more productive work in training because they're going to recover faster in between intervals, which is always one of the arguments I put forward, which is why sprinters do still do conditioning work. Um, of course, this comes into greater and greater play as distances get longer or for sports that have a lot of bouts of high intensity and then a lot of soft contact. Um, you look at a sport like soccer, like football, you know, you're, you're talking about pretty constant pace of running and occasional sprints and bouts of high intensity. But the better your base, the faster you're going to be able to mobilize yourself to get in on every single play. So the zone two work might not necessarily help you chase down the ball carrier, but the zone two work is going to be ensure, is going to ensure that you're in a position to actually even compete. Mm, and so that like by the by, you know, with 15 seconds with 15 minutes left in the game, the other players might be fatiguing, but you still have enough energy to keep going. And then, and then because of the top end work you've been doing, the higher intensity work with 15 minutes left, you still have the ability to sprint at your fastest. Whereas the other people, if they exactly. haven't been doing that zone two work, they're going to be fatiguing out. They'll need a substitute. Exactly. Exactly. It's that base that's going to be, let you be in on every play. Extrapolate that out to pretty much any sport, any endeavor. Mm -hmm. That's been that's been the biggest thing that I've noticed since I've really been building my zone two base has been the things that like, for example, and I think I, you and I have spoken about this before when I would go to an open mat, uh, open mat for jujitsu on Saturdays, and we just do two hours straight of rolling before I'd, I'd be able to only get through a, a certain amount of matches before I needed to take one off just to recover. Now I can go the entire two hours and I don't need to rest. I can go from round to round to round to round to round. And it nothing has changed except I don't need rest in between anymore, which yep. is like that. I think that's a really, for me, that's been one of the, the greatest benefits of zone two is it allows me to recover more quickly. But through doing that, I now get more time practicing my sport. It's I get, that. I get more reps in. It's like, I've also noticed my rest time in between sets, like in the gym, I don't need as much rest in yeah. order to, to display the same amount of strength prior or more strength. 
I don't need as much rest. And I yeah. notice my technique is, is much better to maintain throughout a difficult set or a difficult circuit. I can maintain a better technique without fatiguing as much because I'm recovering more quickly. Well, and I, I think this also touches on something else that's interesting here is that the modalities you've been doing for the zone two work don't necessarily match your sport. Mm. But they still have carried over because I think one question I, I think both of us probably get to is, is elliptical okay for zone two? Is bike okay? Yeah. Can I do this? Can I do that? And you're kind of like, for the base work, it doesn't really matter. Now, yeah. intensity work has is a little more sports specific. I mean, you, you do bike intervals and the like, and that's absolutely fantastic. And But, you know, there's still some local adaptations that you only get from getting on the mat. Mm -hmm. Correct. So, so I tell people like oh, that zone two work, it could be whatever modality you want. Now, if you were trying to run a marathon, I would say your zone two work should probably all be running. But for anybody else, it's kind of like, hey, look, anything that lets you get your heart rate up sustained. It's not swinging kettlebells or anything where it's relatively heavy. and You just go like battle ropes or any of that. It's sustainable. Each repetition is relatively easy, you know, like a step on the elliptical and you're just getting your heart rate. It's whatever you like doing. That makes sense. So so. Last thing on zone two before we get into more into the more high intensity stuff. One of the most common questions I get, and I, and I know you've answered this before, but I, I, I get this question all the time right now. And it, I think it'll be interesting for people to hear this. Um, a lot of people have asked if it's basically they're they're incorrect and they, they're assuming, well, it's just about heart rate. So they think, well, if it's just about getting your heart rate up, like why can't I go in the sauna and just get my heart rate up and get the same benefits of zone two? Um, or, or, uh, what was the other, the other one that people will say, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, something to the effect of like, they, they think it's just about heart rate. And so they're, oh, for another question is, well, can their strength training count as zone two? If, uh, like, so what do you think about that? Like why or why not does just getting your heart rate up, why does that not count as zone two? Right. Cause I think when we're talking about zone two, what we're basically, the reason why heart rate is used is heart rate is a relatively good proxy for what the body is under as far as stress goes. It's a good model representation variable to track that lets you know, loosely speaking, what is the heart, what is the body doing right now? What energy systems is it using, whatever else. The heart rate is, you know, you, you know, it, there's a million different inputs that are constantly controlling your heart rate. You take out cardiac tissue and put in a petri dish, it'll contract at 90 beats per minute, period, full stop. Any change from that requires the input of different systems, different in inputs to that, uh, the sinoatrial node and everything else. Um, there are baroreceptors, pressure sensors. There's tech changes in pH. All of these different things, you get muscle afferent feedback where contracting muscles, contracting skeletal muscle can actually directly affect heart rate. All of these things come in to play to actually impact the heart rate, adrenaline levels, all of these things. There are a lot of things that can elevate the heart rate that aren't actually inducing the same overall stress as zone two work. So if I'm doing zone one work, if I'm just walking up a hill, but something scares the hell out of me, my heart rate's gonna go up. If I am straining against like to, to lift a bar off the ground or anything else, when I put that bar down after a max double on deadlifts, my heart rate is probably gonna be pretty elevated. It's going to be elevated because of peripheral vascular occlusion and, you know, all the muscles are contracted. So the heart is trying to pump harder to keep blood flowing. It's going to be high adrenaline levels, mental arousal, all that. None of those things are getting the benefits of zone two. What we're trying to say is that 
to get your heart rate there, it requires, that's why I always tell people, for something to count as zone two, you need to have a high cycle rate, which means your muscles are contracting fairly frequently to allow blood flow to go in between, mm. and a low discrete intensity. So in other words, whatever you're doing, you're doing relatively fast repetitions, and each repetition, you know we're close to failing on it at any point. You're not going to become close to failing every time you take a step. I usually tell people, like, that's the test. If you think, oh, well, this is lightweight that I'm using here. I'm doing, you know, cleans with 135. I'm like, but you could still fail on that. Yeah. When is the last time you failed taking a step forward? But think about what your cycle rate needs to be and how hard running can get. Each mm. is nearly zero effort, but it's the aggregate that actually makes it stressful. So what I want to tell people is that, don't worry about the heart rate so much slavishly. Like we're talking about like use the talk test and all of that and make sure again, cycle rate is high and discrete weight is low because your heart rate can be affected by a million other things. Don't try to, you know, play games to do something dramatically different because it seems like more fun. Weight training usually won't do it. For anything in the weight room to actually bring you up to zone two, you're probably going to have to use way too little weight. Like, mm. I want to do power cleans with the PVC pipe. <laughs> I could do that. I could do power cleans with the PVC pipe at a rapid rate for 30 minutes and it will possibly be zone two, but that's not really lifting. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Yeah. It's sort of a waste. Yeah, exactly. So basically what I want to tell people is like, look, if there's any chance, if you do this activity nonstop for 60 minutes, nonstop, absolutely nonstop, is there anything that conceivably fail before you just start getting tired mm. and if the answer is yeah you know my muscles will fail my grip will fail anything else then i'll usually say then that means that some part of your body is getting artificially stressed higher than your basic cardiovascular system something else is jacking up your heart rate whether it's discomfort whether it's weight whether it's mental arousal anything else something else is jacking you up too much to have it really count that makes sense that makes total sense and and correct me if i'm wrong there are also muscular benefits to zone two work, right? Like for, for example, um, the other day you had me do, uh, I, I'm a huge fan of the elliptical. Most of my zone two is on the elliptical. Um, you had me do zone two and you wrote with a heavy, heavy emphasis on my arms using as little from my legs as possible. Now that was very difficult from like my shoulders and my back a little bit. Um, I was, it was, it was mostly, you know, it was all concentric stress, no eccentric. So I, I wasn't sore the next day at all, but the, the pump, I got a real pump from it. And I would imagine like I got, I would imagine you had me do that specifically for jujitsu. There's a lot of like upper body work in jujitsu and I need that, that upper body endurance, both in the grip and the arms and everything, which I love doing that. So it's not even purely just uh, cardiac as well. Like it, your, your muscles in general have a benefit. If you're using the bike, to yeah. do zone two work, like your quads, your like your your muscles are developing. They're getting adaptations as a result of that. Correct? Exactly. Yep. Because there are a lot of systemic adaptations of zone two, a lot of systemic ones. But on a local level, there are certain local adaptations that include, you know, local strength endurance. You know, you're but especially you're talking like local capillary perfusion and local. You know, because even cell respiration, number of mitochondria, and all that is in part affected by how much that muscle is being used. Mm. Sure, you're upregulations of the enzymes and you know fat metabolizing enzymes all over your body but you're also going to get a, a 
even greater amount in that local area. So doing a little bit of that zone two work with an emphasis on your upper body, we don't do it as much because obviously it's it's much more stressful for these joints. It's a lot greater range of motion. These joints move through a much wider range of motion and all that. You have to be a little more sparing with it. But for the most part, it's it's really allowing that particular musculature, especially a lot of those smaller accessory muscles, to get some of that stimulation and get you some of those local adaptations that your body needs for your sport. And it was so interesting doing that and also like paying attention to what you just said about could you do it for 60 minutes? Because that was 45 minutes on the elliptical with a, a massive emphasis on my arms. And I was watching Scarface when I did it, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, but it, it, it makes me think about if I had five pound weights and you asked me to do lateral raises for 45 minutes, get out of here. Like, no way. There's no way I'm doing lateral raises for 45 minutes, even with a five pound weight. But like, I I was able to manage it on the elliptical. Obviously, well, there were some times I was using more arm, sometimes a little bit less arm. But like, it was very, it's, it's, I think what you just said is a really good way to frame it. If you couldn't do it for an hour, then that's not a good method for zone two. Exactly. Period, end of story. Exactly. Um, now, so let's go into the high intensity work because I'm really interested in this. Uh, do you have? I don't know if you have. Do you have the data available from what I've been doing for my improvements in front of you at all, or no? I actually do have. Uh, let's see. Here we go. There we go. I do have something in front of me right now. Yep. Okay. So, so I have a lot that I want to talk about, but I figured it'd be cool just to sort of begin with. Could you just explain what improvements you've seen with my in my fitness or my performance with the high intensity work like what where did i start where am i now and what does that practically mean for and just so people can understand it so one of the first things that i usually track is your heart rate recovery in between sets and i think for you that's critically important especially as a fighter as anybody who's involved in a sport where you're doing constant bouts of activity and higher intensity and then you're being asked to recover and most importantly, I think one of the most important aspects of fighting is the idea of being able to reestablish pressure on your opponent sooner mm. rather than the faster you can reapply pressure, the faster you can respond to pressure. If you can put consistent pressure on your opponent at a, such a rate that they are fatiguing while you are maintaining, you are going to win because you are eventually going to put pressure on them in a situation where they are not prepared at all. And you are going to come into that particular effort and absolutely dominate them. So when looking at a lot of your data, one of the things I looked at was your heart rate recovery at the 30 second mark and at the 60 second mark in between two high intensity intervals. And usually this was done during your interval workouts and it was done on the last interval of each one of your uh, moderate, not your, not your pure power intervals, but like your 20 to 30 second intervals. Okay. First started out, I was looking at heart rate recoveries of between 20 and 24, depending on duration. By week, uh, let's see, by week three, your 30 second heart rate recovery, in other words, the number of beats per minute that your heart rate came down after 30 seconds was the same as it used to be after 60 seconds. Holy shit. That's crazy. That was, that was already really remarkable. By week nine, your heart rate recovery in 30 seconds was four beats per minute faster or four beats per minute more than you were recovering after 90 seconds in the beginning. Wow. So, so that's, uh, and that speaks to quite a lot and your, your heart rate recovery at 60 seconds improved by actually we are now going on 14 beats per minute improvement overall. So 
what this basically means and what this is tracking is there are a lot of things involved in heart rate recovery. We're talking about, you know, how quickly your, your body returns to baseline levels of arousal, how if your heart rate is going to come down again, remember we said heart rate elevates in response to, you know, not only just, you know, chemical levels, but pH, pressure, et cetera. It means that, for example, the acid base, you know, your blood is returning to baseline more quickly, which means your respiration is better. It means you're probably generating fewer metabolites and clearing them faster. You know, all of these things put together and also the breath holds that you've been doing, for example, maybe improving your ability to tolerate slightly higher levels of CO2. So your heart rate your heart is not responding to elevated CO2 levels quite as much. So all of this stuff is coming into play at this point. When we look at these numbers, you are after 30 seconds now in a better position now there are other things involved but after 30 seconds you are better positioned now to reapply pressure than you possibly were after a full minute or two when you first started that's crazy that's, that like that's absolutely that, insane yeah and i mean that's and that's probably the kind of thing that you you might notice, but you also don't, is that, you know, you can, it, it's been a gradual process, but if you think about it again, after a minute and a half, or sorry, after 30 seconds now, you probably feel as ready to go as you did after a full minute, if not two off, you know, several months ago. Oh, with, without question. I mean, and, and sort of definitely in the sprints, but even for me, what what is more important for me is, is like my actual jujitsu performance, right? And so like, it's like I said, I don't need to take rest in between rounds anymore. I went for 40 minutes today with my coach nonstop, like didn't stop going the entire time. It's, uh, it's one of the crazy things when I'm, I, I remember when I first started doing jujitsu, I used to say to guys, sometimes I would roll with them. I'd be like, man, it just, you just never get tired. What's going on? Like I'm breathing so heavy and you're just never tired. And now people are saying that to me. They're like, geez, like, uh, like for the first minute they're good. But after that minute, they're like, then they're done. I'm like, all right, cool. Now I'm going to really put pressure on you and you're already exhausted. So it's going to be very easy for me. There's a saying in jujitsu, like a tired black belt is a white belt. It's just like, it doesn't matter how good you are. Once you're tired, you're done. So it's been so crazy. And yeah, definitely during the sprints, not only have I realized that, for example, the 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 power sprints where it's 15 seconds on, minute 45 rest, which I think a lot of people listening are probably like, really, you have a minute and 45, you have a minute 45 rest in between your 15 second sprints. Like, yeah, you need that if you really want to reach like max power. But it's so crazy because by by about a minute. I'm good for sure, but I can also maintain my power for longer than before. So for example, like before, uh, I, I would try and get, like, I think when we first started, I, like, I think my, the first Watts you ever told me to hit were like five or 600 or something. Uh, <laughs> and, and now like yesterday I hit a, a, a record of over 1100 Watts, but like I can, I can hit higher Watts and do, and, and achieve greater power for longer periods of time so before i was maybe doing like five or six total sprints now i'm doing eight nine ten sprints at more watts and like i feel ready to go with a much shorter rest period like it's act it's fucking crazy yeah yeah and that's you know again obviously there's some sports specific adaptations there but again the fact that it, again there's significant carryover into everything else you're doing is is precisely it and you know like i said you're, you're talking about coming back and being able to put pressure on sooner rather than later. But like you said, you're also able to put more pressure on in the middle of it. You know, you're, you're able to, because you know that any, any given 
portion of any fight, of any engagement, of anything is just a matter of slight degrees and slight edge. And, you know, there's there's very few situations where you're just flat out going to completely overwhelm somebody and get them caught completely off guard and just, you know, everything is going to be this slight give and take and being able to put a little pressure and see where somebody gives and, you know, see if they're going to be able to, they have the mental capacity to respond to any sudden change you make. And just kind of tracking and this give and take that's going on between two fighters. When one person starts to fatigue and you feel them slow down a little bit, you feel them try to hold in one position a little bit longer. You feel them try to let down their guard just a little bit as they try to catch their breath. And you pick up on that and you seize on that. You only have to be a few percentage points better than them to be able to you know, catch them. And those slow, those little incremental shifting of the balance in your direction every time that happens eventually does overwhelm somebody and the objective now when you look at these improvements is that you're you know an order of magnitude potentially ahead of you know when you very very first started all this conditioning and even again looking at your numbers since we first started it's been phenomenal yeah you said that perfectly it's so true it's very rarely in a fight is it like one dominant over the other it's a war like you're it's a real war between the two and that was actually something mentally i had to i had to learn how to deal with with jujitsu because i think just naturally we have this inclination to want to dominate like to want to just beat the other person without even really trying it's very rare to actually have that happen it's like when you go against someone like you're 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 going to war and it's going to the first minute especially is just brutal because you both have the most amount of energy the most amount of strength and so like you've really like what's been interesting for me is if i can make it past the first minute i'm Mm -hmm. usually going to win especially if it's someone like around my level because by the time the first minute's gone they're they're depleted they're tired and i can slowly it doesn't mean like at a minute and 10 seconds i've won it means that by the fourth minute, I'm probably submitting them because by the end of, of by, for the first minute, it's even for the next yeah. 30 seconds. Like I notice a slight decrease in their, in their speed and in their, in their strength and in their movement by the second minute, I'm noticing like real decreases. Then I put a little bit more pressure on by the third minute. Now I'm controlling them so much. And they're so, they're so tired. I can start setting up submissions and then by the fourth minute it's over because I've, I'm, I'm not tired yet. Whereas by, yep. by the, between the second and third minute, they go through some real like come to Jesus moments where they're like, fuck, yep. I'm so tired. I'm so exhausted. It's very difficult to keep up. So it's been, yep. it's been really cool to have that knowledge in my back pocket of saying like, just wait, just wait another minute, keep going, keep this yep. pace. And, and yep. it's also been really cool to track my heart rate, which I never did before working with you. I never tracked my heart rate. Um, it's been really cool to track it now because when I'm in the middle of a match, I can I can know generally where I'm at and I can almost say, all right, like just pull back a little bit here, let your heart rate come down for 10 seconds. And once you feel like you're right around 140 to 150, you can increase it again, go. And it's like, that's an unconscious thought process that's happening in my head now where I'm like, all right, I know I'm like 170 right now. So let me come down for a second and then boom, apply more pressure. Like it's, it's really crazy shit. Yes. Yeah. It's, you know, have you ever watched cycling? Have you ever watched the Tour de France? Never. I've never have, no. You know, whether or not you you like the sport is a really interesting one to watch how these athletes are exactly doing that to each other. Like on on climbs, you'll see it all the time. 
And what they're doing is they're doing precisely that. But what's so I, I think what makes it so obvious in cycling is you could tell because one is physically ahead of the other. So you can see when they're doing that. It's yeah. not subtle. But you can watch how they, you know, they test each other constantly. And, you know, one puts a little bit of pressure on and sees if the other one can match. And then, you know, uh... they and see if they can drag them out. And they just look for that sign of weakness. And you can see the one who's better conditioned because they'll push a little bit and look for that sign of weakness. And if they see weakness, if they're like, okay, my opponent, I'm putting pressure on him now. He is 10 seconds away from recovering. I'm recovered. I'm going to hit him now. <laughs> and they'll launch and they'll watch their opponent's soul just get crushed. <laughs> and that's all that they need. And I, I think that's the thing is in fighting, it's even more obvious because when you hit that moment and you're like, they're not ready to go, I just crushed their soul, you potentially put them in a really bad position and you get that advantage over them. That's so it's interesting. In that's so like yeah. it's essentially it's a fight in in cycling as well. Like so much of of athletics is a fight, right? When you when there's an opponent, even if you're not actually fighting, it's it's a war, and it's yeah. like it's mind games, and you're trying to figure out, all right, like how can I essentially how can I make this person believe that they are not as good as me? How can I make this person believe that they are not as conditioned me that they're not they don't they don't have it? When can I strike to make them the most insecure? Exactly, and and that's it, and that's all it takes because you'll have two people. One is better than the other but if he hits it just the right moment the other one is caught off guard the other one just immediately mentally emotionally and and you know how it feels you know how it feels in that brief moment where you just get beaten ever so slightly and you just don't have it you can't respond you know that that can just send you off a cliff yeah man that's so interesting i'll have to watch the tour de france um so so Heart rate recovery, you look at very clearly. Like, uh, that's really important to you. What else do you look at in terms of markers of success for higher intensity work? So one of the other things I was looking at is, you know, there's there's obviously there's there's VO2 max, which we've heard about. There is your V dot, which is something that, uh, you know, Daniel's running tables and a few others arrive at. Um, if we want to think about it this way, the way a V dot or v, VO2 max estimated is calculated is it's basically looking at your weight, your heart rate, and your pace at different areas. And actually, I've got a big chart that pulls into things like you know age and temperature and all of that, which I usually use. But for the most part, what I typically do is I do a V dot that is derived by looking at your pure mile time trial. Okay. And then I have a V dot that's calculated looking at your zone two, your low intensity performance. Now, in an ideal world, for an ideal athlete that has the proper mix of high and low intensity proficiency, they'll be about the same. Okay. For example, let's put it in lifting terms. It's like if I have you max out once a week, or like let's say I, I get your one rep max by testing your one rep max, and then I get your one rep max by testing your eight rep max. Mm, okay. Yeah. Those should be pretty close. If one is dramatically higher than the other, or if your eight rep max would predict a one rep max. And and it turns out to be wildly different, you know that your training has been a bit too much in one way or the other, and something is missing. You know, you're you're missing form, you're missing some neurological adaptations or, you know, something else. So when I calculate these two V-dots, first of all, they have improved by, your, your high-intensity V-dot has improved by nine points. And if you know VO2 max, like, you know, starting in something in the mid-40s and progressing to something in the mid-50s is pretty significant. That's is, that, is that what my VO2 max has improved to? Uh, no, I'm not going to tell you what it is right now because I will oh, okay. actually go back and look at it. But <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's actually improved more than that. I'll leave it there. Um, so 
the your V dot, your low intensity V dot used to actually be significantly higher than your high intensity one. And that makes sense. You've been doing a lot of low intensity work, you know, prior to us uh, training, prior to us working together. So your your low intensity perceived performance was quite high, but okay. your ability to leverage that was not quite as high. So when we looked at like your mile time trial, when we looked at your high intensity work, it actually returned a value lower than we would have anticipated mm. at your low intensity work. In the course of it took up to the seven week mark for those numbers to hit the exact same amount. Wow. And that's been an improvement in your low intensity as well. Your low intensity improved by five points, actually, over that time period. Your high intensity improved by significantly more than that. Really? Yeah. And they've been tracking more or less in lockstep moving forward. So in other words, your your predicted high intensity performance uh, from your high intensity work and your predicted high intensity performance from your low intensity work have been more or less matched. So that means that you're pretty much optimized right now. The interesting things here are a couple of things. First of all, as you anticipated, your low intensity conditioning was quite good. You just didn't have that higher intensity bit to match it. And after seven weeks, you saw all the joint improvement, like all the, the differences, the discrepancy, more or less get erased. So one of the questions I sometimes get from people is, if I do nothing but low intensity work, how long am I going to have to do high intensity work to really see how fast I can go? Mm. The answer to that, and, and you'll see it in studies, you know, all those studies that me- measure high intensity against low intensity work, they say six to eight weeks is about the cap. That's about how long it takes. If you've done nothing but base work, six to eight weeks of high intensity work will let you leverage and realize that base. And that's exactly what we saw in your data. At the seven week mark, they hit the same amount. That's crazy that exactly at seven weeks, we hit the same that's amount. That's, that's insane. And so, so going forward from there, do you, does your training change or is it like, Hey, we just like, we keep progressing as we are now, like, and now they're going to sort of progress in unison. We keep progressing as we are now. And uh, the reason why I track both of them is depending week to week, um, each one can get prone to slightly different interruptions. Like for example, uh, there's certain elements of neuromuscular fatigue and, you know, pain, discomfort, recovery, whatever else that can potentially affect, say, your high intensity ability more than your low intensity. Or you can deal with something like severe dehydration or if you're in a caloric deficit or anything else, you may notice your low intensity may suffer. So what we do by tracking them both and by kind of working on both concurrently and using them both as variables is we can look at that to determine if there are certain training disruptions or anything that's potentially causing issues in your progress or systemically that we need to address. Mm, okay, that makes sense. That makes total sense. Um, so could you talk about, I feel like that, that gives a really good idea of how to measure progress and what to look for with high intensity work. Can you just talk about practically speaking, how you tend to program high intensity work? Just like for people listening, like maybe they wanna start adding it, like they're we're gonna assume they're already doing zone two because they listen to us talk for hours about zone two. So. How would someone go about incorporating high-intensity training into their workouts? Who should be doing it? Who shouldn't be doing it? Um, like how how much – we know like sort of the 85-15 rule generally, but like what modalities do you like for it? How much time should be spent on it? Could you give some talk, talk about that stuff? I know I just threw a shit ton at you. Yeah, no. So my favorite thing with high-intensity work, first of all, is to use as many muscle groups as possible and keep the impact low. A lot of people, when they say high intensity work, say, oh, I should do sprints. Sprints are one of the worst choices. Not that, not that I don't like sprints. I think sprints are great. And as an athletic movement, it's a foundational human movement, whatever. But 
<laughs> Sprints are also, they're difficult to do properly. You need space. People pull hamstrings all the time. There's a huge form component. If you can get on an elliptical or air bike, something that uses your upper body and lower body, and it's got adjustable intensity, and it's mostly concentric, that is the perfect modality to use for high intensity. It is almost full body. You are not going to hurt yourself. It's generally constrained, so you're not going to hyperextend anything. For anybody talking about using high intensity work and incorporating that, that is the way I would go. And I would start with very easy, like, you know, 20 seconds on, 40 seconds off, 20 seconds on, 40 seconds off as something that they can tolerate and go from there. I typically also tell people if you want to do two interval sessions per week, have one be 20 second intervals and the other be one minute intervals. One, uh, basically a one to two ratio of work to rest and doing, again, depending on how much cardio you're doing per week, make sure the total amount of time you spend doing work is 12 or 15% of your total cardio minutes or less. Okay, simple. And, you know, if people want to know if they can do that in the middle of their zone two work, I would say don't make a habit of it because it causes other kinds of fatigue. Um, you know, make sure that basically rule of thumb is 25%, you know, because even though we're, we're dealing with this ratio, this, you know, 85 to 15, and we said there can be some overlap, you're going to count some of your work in those interval training as your zone two, even though you're counting some of that, make sure at least three quarters of your cardio sessions are pure zone two. And that can even just mean, look, I do two interval sessions per week. How am I going to make three quarters? I'm not doing eight cardio sessions a week. Fine, whatever. Do three zone two sessions per week. Do four zone two sessions per week. Those don't have to be a big deal. That could be 20 minutes of sitting on the bike or on the stepper when you're done with your weight training session. Fine. Boom. Done. Easy. Super simple. I love that. And, and just to clarify, so you said like a, a one to two work rest ratio. So if you're sprinting for 20 seconds, rest for 40 seconds. If you're sprinting for a minute, rest for two minutes. Yep. And the reason why you and I will sometimes do even higher output ones is quite simply a couple of things. First of all, maximum power is some, one of the objectives there. Yep. And additionally, it's also being able to tolerate sheer discomfort for that period of time. Yeah. That is, yeah. That is major, major focus. It's dealing with that dramatic shortness of breath. It's being able to maintain a level of intensity to be able to push yourself past the point of discomfort. All of that stuff comes into play. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, like for anyone who's looked into energy system training, they'll understand like there's real need for somewhere between like a five to a 15 second max effort sprint, whether you're doing like uh, a power, like the capacity work or the power work, like anaerobic power versus anaerobic capacity. So like it's for sport performance, I would imagine that that's incredibly important depending on the sport. But like do you, for most people, generally speaking, you think sprints between like 20 seconds to a minute is a good place to to keep that range absolutely yep because much more than that and it's almost just pure neuromuscular output like the advantages you're going to get from that you may as well just go lift so and and how how many total sprints would you do in a single workout honestly so a big part of that when i tell people is it's until you start to get major performance drop-offs um, some people may do three of them and say, I can maintain high intensity, but then they really start to suffer. If you're maintaining an even output for 20 seconds and after the third, you suddenly start dropping off, you should probably cap it at four or five mm. and go by total minutes as a percentage of your total training over the course of the week. So that's kind of self-correcting. If people just want hard and fast answers, eight. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny because, um, 
when for example when i'm doing the 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 anaerobic power sprints that you have me doing where i'm doing 15 seconds on a minute 45 off you never say how many to do what you say is track my watts and you say like you you know generally what my watt like what's a good wattage what's a shit wattage so like you'll say all right for you if you hit i want you to hit at least a thousand watts and once you can no longer hit a thousand watts you're done and exactly. that's that's usually when i first started it was right around five and now it's around like eight or nine like and yeah. that's eight nine, eight or nine total sprints and i'm done but when i first started it was five and then yep. once i could push it up to six and then after a little bit i could push it up to seven and you see these changes happening and that's a form of progressive overload essentially but like that's that's uh you, you, i think i think because of all of these like classes whether it's orange theory or whatever it is people think they need to be doing sprints for an hour straight and they need to be doing like 15 20 rounds of sprints it's like you don't need that much in order to get the benefits yeah yeah you really don't you really don't need that much um with sprints a little bit goes a long way and uh, you know a lot bit goes a long way but a little bit goes a long way you don't need a heck of a lot to actually get those adaptations and it's very much individual and what i tell people is when you can no longer do quality work you're not doing quality work so that applies more than ever with sprints. I like that. I love it with the elliptical. I was surprised how much I like the sprints on the elliptical. I thought it was going to be a little bit awkward, but like I actually really like it. And so between the elliptical and the the air bike, the watts have been so helpful because that's just like a clear cut way to tell is my performance dropping. It's not. It's not like a subjective it's like no it's very clear like you're producing fewer watts now than you were before and like if you have that marker of, all right so once i go below below this number i'm yeah. done like I'm, yeah. I'm only i'm gonna be training bad habits i'm not actually gonna be getting anything good from this exactly and you know it's it's like again it's like lifting when you know if you're still pushing you know you're an hour and a half in your workout and you're going you know you're doing this accessory work and you're barely able to move weight and you're throwing it all over the place you're saying what am i getting out of this yeah you know I'm just introducing fatigue with, I'm not hitting the training objective anymore. This is all a waste. That's exactly what it is. Is, is there anything else that you wanted to discuss in terms of high intensity training, whether it's things that, that questions you get asked or anything that I was not smart enough to ask anything else that you wanted to talk about? I mean, a, a big thing is, you know, people do also like, I'm, I'm glad we talked about lifting as, as cardio and all that. One of the things, again, that you brought up is, you know, when do I know how much high intensity should to do? How much should I do for my sport and all that? And with with that, the the answer is, you know, because there's there's so much of it depends. Mm -hmm. It is so, so dose specific because the answer I always give people for that is do as much as you want to do. Not so much that it starts to actually hurt you somewhere else. High intensity work, you'll learn very quickly. Start out with a couple of rounds. The next week, increase it by 10%, the number of rounds, increase by 10%, and keep an eye on it, and go easy with it. Because mm. it, you'll know very quickly when quality starts to suffer, you'll see your lifts start to suffer, you'll see everything else start to suffer. You'll get punished for it very quickly. You don't need to push up to your maximum volume, recoverable volume, or anything to actually see benefits from it. That's good to know. And, and it, so one last question. I think this one's really important. I, I think I know what you're going to say, but it's worthwhile. Let's say you have someone, um, not an athlete, someone who just, they want to get started with health and fitness. They haven't really been working out very much. What's more important for them, zone two or, or sprints? What do you think they should start with? Yeah, by far and away, the zone two. And, yeah. and, and, and one, one of the other reasons for that as well is 
look, if you've got limited amounts of time to train, the best thing you can do for yourself, obviously you should do some cardio. One of the best things people could do for themselves is get in the gym and start lifting. Mm. Body composition, strength, injury prevention, longevity, all those things, that's paramount. You know, people say, do you, do you like lifting or cardio more? I actually like cardio more. But <laughs> as, as, if you could only do one per week and you had to choose, I would say strength training is probably the way to go. Just overall, by a small Interesting. margin. Interesting. Small margin. And Why is that? that? You know, honestly, because I think just in your daily life, you could probably get in a reasonable facsimile of general cardio. You keep walking, you get your steps in and everything else. Mm. You can more reasonably emulate it without direct training. But if you get two sessions per week, do cardio for the second one. <laughs> Because of that, I will tell people that, so the goal of a lot of your, your, your cardio work is also to not hinder the quality of your weightlifting sessions, your weight training sessions. The zone two work gives you the vast majority of health and longevity benefits of endurance training with so much less fatigue that you're able to keep that energy for all the other places in your life that you need it. Because the other, you know, profound thing is also, am I going to be sore after this? Am I going to be fatigued? Does this require my mental input? You know, all of these kinds of things. Save the high intensity work, save the fatigue, save the heavy lifting, heavy muscular contraction, save that for your lifting. Let that cardiovascular work be the easy work that is just as beneficial for your heart and has all these side benefits and has almost no cost to your recovery. I love that, man. That that's super helpful. Thank you so much for taking the time to do all this, man. That, like this is this is these are amazing. Could you could you tell people where they can follow you again? And if if you yeah. still have not followed Alex, what are you waiting for? Just go follow him right now. Tell them where they tell them where they can follow you. Instagram Alex.Viata, uh, Complete Human Performance. Both of those, I do my weekly Q and As on Instagram. Uh, for the most part, it's just me talking into a phone. But uh, production value is low, but hopefully content quality is pretty high. Content quality is always high. Entertainment value is always very high as well. There's always a couple <laughs> things in there that are great to watch. <laughs> and, you know, like with anything else, ask away. Don't care how silly you think the question is. Somebody else can probably benefit from it. You know, so yeah. anybody well, who comments on the question sticker. Thank you so much, man. Uh, I appreciate you doing this. It's always super helpful and everyone really loves it. So thank you very much. Absolutely. My pleasure. That wraps it up for this episode of the Jordan Syatt Mini Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please leave a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify. They really help the podcast a lot. So huge thank you to everyone who's done that already. And if you'd like to join the Inner Circle, you can do that at www.sfinnercircle.com or just go to the link in the show notes. Have a wonderful day, and I'll talk to you soon.